0: Hi, I'm Joanna Roach and you are listening to The Nature of Nantucket, our Mariah Mitchell podcast. Welcome to our artist in residence this month, Tucker Finnerty. Hi, Tucker, how are you today?
1: I'm good, Joanna, how are you doing today?
0: I am good on this beautiful summer Nantucket day. Uh, I'm happy to get to chat with you a little bit about your story and your art. So, yeah,
1: the feeling's mutual.
0: Great, so let's start by saying How did you discover Nantucket?
1: Uh, So it's kind of a backward story. So I'm from New England, particularly uh, Seacoast, New Hampshire. But I'd never actually been down here because a lot of my uh, focus focused on uh, abroad. So for the early two-thirds of my 20s, I spent most of the time uh, either in South Asia or South America, uh, Central Asia, Eastern Europe. So that's kind of where I started traveling and then it was actually through COVID and the pandemic that I ended up coming home and I eventually got brought down to Nantucket to shoot with a fisherman uh, and that's what actually introduced me to Nantucket and particularly that side of Nantucket.
0: Okay, the fishing side.
1: Exactly, the kind of the outdoorsman side that I didn't even frankly really knew existed to the level it does down here.
0: Okay, and so you grew up in on the water then in New Hampshire?
1: Close to it, so about 10 minutes from the water, yeah.
0: Okay. All right. And how, how did you become interested in photography?
1: Uh, so it followed suit uh, with travel. So I was, be- I was gone for long periods of time. And uh, I kept seeing that the coolest stories and the coolest places to go weren't ones you could necessarily pay your way into. And frankly, I didn't have the budget to pay my way into, I was going on extended backpacking trips. So we were kind of shoestringing it as long as we could. So I saw that uh, photographers and videographers had something that was outside of money to actually trade, and they got brought on the kind of biggest and coolest stuff uh, if you were basically sound of mind and body, where you could actually like go and hold your own in these harsher environments. And I kind of figured that was my end just because I didn't go to school for this, and so I couldn't necessarily compete in the studio realm. Uh, or in the just purebred editorial stuff. So I went after tourism and just tourism boards and travel companies by just kind of going to these places and saying, I have, uh, I'm here on your doorstep. I have availability and I have durability. Uh, let's go take some pictures. So, and it just slowly kind of rolled into really enjoying the character side of things and especially the, more removed, the harder someone was to kind of earn their picture, uh, the more lucrative it was. It just felt like that much bigger of a win when I got a picture that I felt did uh, justice. And especially since I was gone uh, for such extended periods of time away from my family, it became kind of the way I would communicate with my family. I I was sending back these pictures, and it was just always this effort to make sure the picture did a justice to the place or to the person that I had just become so enthralled with. And so that became kind of what set the bar and just made me want to get better because the people deserve to have their pictures taken better.
0: That sounds amazing. So talk to me about some of the places that you traveled and some tell, tell us some interesting stories or about things that you learned.
1: So there's a handful that always kind of peak every there's kind of like the highlight reel. So it's always the like the trips that go. A lot of them went very smoothly, but the crazy ones always have elements of ups and downs. Those are the stories (laughs) people tend to like to hear. So I was in Nepal for a while. I spent a while just hiking through the Himalaya. Um, That was my first time into any realm of mountains like that. That was uh, to say that was eye opening. Um, is an understatement. I've now been fortunate to spend a lot of time in either the Himalayas or the Andes, um, and those mountains—it was mountains that I kind of always pursued, either through skiing or uh, through hiking, and just like long, tr- like long, uh, long-term hikes, so like twelve to fourteen days sometimes. And we would go and just go through these big passes and these entire just kind of ecosystems, and you could watch a country change very slowly. So it was always a big challenge to shoot. Um, but the ones people, I spent two months, uh, riding horses, uh, yurt camp to yurt camp in Kyrgyzstan, which is in central Asia. Wow. Um, so that was, I did that at 22 years old and I didn't really tell my parents I was going until I got there and said, this is where I am and dropped a pin on the map, which is a very alarming thing. I kind of did it because I had mentioned it to a lot of people and People were very scared of Kyrgyzstan. I'd heard a lot of really cool things. And I grew up working on horse farms. So my grandmother taught me how to, since I was, it was all my first jobs, was being a stable boy and a barn hit, um, since I was like 10 or 12. And so I knew how to bridle and saddle and ride. And so I knew as a photographer, that was kind of a big piece that pushed me over the edge was I knew the barrier to entry into a place like that was very high and if I could be the one, I wasn't seeing many high-end pictures come out of there and I knew if I could go in there and I had this unique skill set that I grew up with that could maybe set me apart even more so and I could get access to these really cool communities and that's ended up being exactly what happened. So just kind of, Kyrgyzstan is 90% mountains. Uh, they say it's like the Switzerland of Central Asia, where it's just these huge... So it's the tail end of the Himalaya. Um, and so you go from massive mountain ranges, but then it falls away to what everyone would uh, be familiar with, with the like plateau and the steppe. And so you have these huge mountains and glacial lakes and just massive glaciers, um, but there's no one there. There's most, not even roads. So you're riding usually day, like each year camp is kind of a day's ride away and so you just go and you're alone and you'll bump into an occasional shepherd uh or an eagle hunter which is really cool so they actually still hunt with golden eagles they pluck them from the nest right before they're like big enough to jump and so you'll bump into these guys um when we were in there in the colder one, uh colder month um
0: wow yeah. did, did you live with how, where how did you live there
1: so like we with just family? So it was the Yurt Camp family. So there's, so I would pay uh, for a bed, basically, and meals. And there's just a huge, from the times of the Mongols, uh, hospitality and uh, basically kindness to travelers and guests is basically paramount because a lot of it can come down to if you reject people who are asking for housing which is like we didn't just show up to these places and just say give me like there was preset these guys had been contacted or there'd been kind of like preset villages where this specific guide knew people that they had space and they had provisions. so it wasn't just kind of showing up and being like hey feed me because to people with that limited of resource that's not a thing we're going to do um but that's kind of the status quo is if you like they're welcome they have beds you eat with the family everyone kind of like so i would go and it was really cool. I would have a camera and a drone. So a lot of the times, one of the coolest parts was I could show them where they're living from a completely different perspective. No one had been out there with a drone, at least from the year camps I'd stayed with. And so it was the coolest thing I'm like from the front flap of the tent, because it's not a door. Like some of them have doors, but a lot of them just have a giant um flap that cover the front door. We would sit there and with the family, I can't communicate with them or just myself, but through the guide. But I could say, uh, I could just put the drone up and I would have them point on the controller to places they would want to see. And I would just kind of shoot it. And then I some I have shots. There was one shot of one of the the eldest sons from this Yurt camp. He's riding on, and it's in the banner video on my website. Um, he was so excited to take his horse out and get a shot. And the coolest part was through technology, they all have WhatsApp. So I was able to basically send, like, I waited they move seasonally. And so when they finally come down out of the mountains, uh, when the winter hits and they come down to these villages, then they actually have steady WhatsApp and good enough Wi-Fi to download the stuff. So like four months after I left or like three months, um, all of a sudden I start getting messages all in Cyrillic, all in Russian and just, but with emojis and everything of just the video, (laughs) like just like, all right, they liked them. I can't translate it. Like they're all speaking dialect from different regions, but it's just like, Thumbs up and smiley faces is pretty pretty uniform.
0: Wow. That that sounds very <laughs> intense. And you it did was. that you, you did that for two years?
1: No, 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 no. Two months. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, two two years. <laughs> two years is a uh I'm dying to go back and spend another at least that amount of time. Um, not two two months, three months, just because it's a place that for the long like I really like uh to kind of embed and actually like get to know a spot and I find that's where you get to see your I try to explain it to people is like you're kind of going into a new environment so it's like going into a really bright light you have to let your eyes adjust to the light before you're only looking at the like the shiniest of things because the coolest things I like and I use this analogy just because I like dark photos I like kind of things that are like you look into the shadows but like the coolest things happen in the shadows. They're not begging for your attention. You have to kind of be just paying attention and know, just keep an eye out and they'll come to you. So that's where spending an extended period of time in a place and getting to learn it helps a lot because then you also get to ask better questions. You get to just kind of, dis- yeah, you're more informed about what you're taking pictures of. And then through that, you get pictures that not only speak to the people who aren't from there, but are also representative to the people uh, who live that life daily. And that's something I have taken with me everywhere. I try to do it here with the fishermen, where the real test of the merit of the pictures isn't if people who don't spend their time on boats love them. It's like if the guys who like this is their world, say you nailed it, or you saw something unique that they always miss, or they've never looked like, that's like the biggest compliment.
0: That is very cool. So some of those lessons that you learned and putting yourself in those immersive experiences, how have how has that connected you to embedding, like your word, I like that, with fishermen and with the the sort of local island community and starting to develop the body of work that you have now? And how did you know what it is you wanted to see in that work?
1: I think that's some of the beauty of it is I had a By the time I got here, I had uh, learned that most first assumptions are always wrong. Like something I like to tell friends who are going traveling, or I still do if I go somewhere new, is like you write down on a page everything you think about how the trip is going to be or what the people are going to be like. And then at the end of the trip, it's so cool to see how wrong you were of like 90%, like all of your preconceived notions, because most of the time, not that they're negative, but just it's so different once you actually get somewhere. So with the fishermen here, I had, so I'm from the coast of New Hampshire and so I'm familiar with it, but I'm not from like a career fishing family. And I was always the one who also, if I had a rod in my hand, I couldn't catch fish. So I also like, that's why I like the cameras. I always catch something when we go out. But luckily I get to hang out here with some pretty good fishermen. So I've been put on a bike quite a few times. We've broken the bad luck streak. Um, But in terms of the community, it has just it kind of revealed itself i didn't know about the eelgrass per se when i got here or the level of conservation the level of work and the level of importance that uh the eelgrass kind of represents to nantucket as a whole and so that's where getting that explained to me from initially uh the guys on the albacore the DeCastas, bob and ray have been telling me about Uh, just kind of the eelgrass and just because I was just asking them questions while on the boat and because they're scallopers, they had front-hand knowledge um, or first-hand knowledge of what was actually going on and that was two years before last season when I first learned about that and then I'm out on the water with them in Madiket last year and they're having one of the best scallop harvests they've ever seen um, just because of the seeding and the quality of the eelgrass and for another project I was out Uh, just doing even some clamming and there's eelgrass everywhere. And that was where it's really cool to see. Now, once you kind of, otherwise I just would have looked at it almost as normal seaweed and or just normal. And so, but to know how much of an anchor that is for this ecosystem Mm -hmm. that took time, but that's kind of what I've brought from uh, just other places and just an archive of knowledge and previous experiences is that like, normally it's going to show itself you going in trying to tell like you have to meet either the people or the story where it is not where you want it to be so uh because otherwise you can kind of come in and you're trying to say something that isn't necessarily representative to what the people are trying to do because you're at you're trying to put it in the way you think it should be where as opposed to just like letting people explain and then adapting as you go
0: and where do you think this photography, this career that you've been developing will take you? Like what's the next unexplored place or space?
1: So I've never, so two big projects I'm kind of working on are photo books, where coffee table books, where it's, I want long, I find comparison To be really cool, because especially when you get to see everyone who does something similar, maybe like the same trade, but then you get to see how you thought that trade was just like one type of person. If you see the minute details, it's like fishermen. Like you think scallopers and oyster farmers and tuna fishermen, they're all fishermen. Like it can't be that big of a difference or even just the difference between oyster farmers and where they grow their oysters, where their farm is. So I'm trying to do uh, photo books on some of the communities and intricacies the interest, excuse me, the intricacies that exist between them, specifically uh historical fishing communities uh globally. So starting in New England, but then going to some of the places I've previously been, like Greece, like South Asia, specifically the Philippines, specifically Vietnam, um, or even Polynesia, and or the coast of Africa, it's those communities have been integral to human history they don't get a light shown on them all that much but they're also the first ones it's usually one of the more efficient food sources throughout human history but as soon as any time there as soon as climate change happens those in those villages or those communities are the first ones affected because they're right on the waterfront so either previously when uh the ice ages happened or melted those communities were flooded. And so that's why a lot of the time we don't have as much of a record of them. And so it was specifically inspired. There was a small red net piece that was in the gallery that uh, I just did. And I kept that piece because that kind of is what kicked off the idea. And it's a fisherman uh, from Greece. His name is Nicholas. Uh, I met him my last time there. I've been fortunate to work in Greece for about eight years. And just because there's so many different communities amongst the islands, Um, he's on an island called Milos, which is a very, uh, significantly big fishing island. So it's just had a big history of fishing. Um, and this village Klima, long story short, he's the last, like they can trace their history back 3000 years to when it was initially settled. He's the last one hand-making the gill nets that they use all around that island. And that's one of those nets. And because of sea level rise, that village probably in the next 20 years is about to get erased. So this like kind of 3000 year legacy of fishing in Greece is about to get put underwater and then no one can see it. No one can really look at it. And no one's ever going to be able to see Nicholas sitting there with his morning coffee, looking out his doorway that his grandfather sat in every day, hand-making these gillnets or repairing these gillnets as well. And so that kind of was like, it's a gift that I've been afforded to even go into these places. A lot of the times people like that fall into my lap. Nicholas fell into my lap where it was just, unbelievably almost divine timing that it lined up. And I had been looking for someone like that on the island. And then I'd kind of given up the search and then literally three days down from the last three doors down from the last place I was supposed to stay. I just went for a walk as I do. I kind of I'm just going to I'm just going to go for a walk. Yeah, We could go left. We could go right. I'm going to go left. And I went left and all of a sudden there's one of these nets hanging out his front door and I just see the tug of him every once in a while tugging. And so I just poke my head in and he looks out, the village is empty and he just waves. And then his son shows up who I can communicate. And it was really cool. I was able to use photos from Nantucket to show that I do work with fishermen and specifically tuna fishermen. And those guys had previously fished for tuna because the same tuna that come through Nantucket And get all fattened up uh in the late summer and fall they spawn in the mediterranean so it's kind of like this yeah so i got to show them pictures of a father-son the albacore the ray and bob on the albacore a father-son fishing duo from nantucket and even though nicholas didn't speak any english uh he went through the full catalog and like nodded and and that was what and i ended up spending like probably a collective day with him over three days just as he did different little things um, and I just communed and spent every morning, like talking with him and his son over coffee and crackers and just kind of like asking them questions about their village. And there's like his, it was an amazing. So. For those reasons, that kind of punch, that was a slap in the face from the idea of the photo book. This is something that would be so, like, the fishing side of it, but also the overarching, like, cultural and historical side of it, the, like, way, because fishing is, yeah, there's always the why, why these guys use these nets, why these guys use these baits, why these guys go out at this time of year. It's always fascinating. And so, to get just, like, the catching of the fish, but also the why, and just make sure that kind of gets... Well, I so love that, be, it's Thank a, you.
0: That is a beautiful story If people are interested in seeing your work it's on display at 33 Washington Street it is in our Mariah Mitchell building and we have been really happy to host you there this month and your your photography is simply stunning and nice. you are also available I know for um, people to hire you or to do drone work
1: exactly.
0: and um, yeah so thank you for joining me today
1: been my pleasure thank you for having Appreciate me that. for letting me tell some of these stories that i honestly don't get to tell all that on. it's yeah it's fun
0: and if you have been listening i'm joanna roach with the mariah mitchell association and our podcast is called the nature of nantucket and we've been speaking with tucker Finerty, photographer